Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, Senior Pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. And today I am joined by the the first ever three-time repeat guest. I think when you get to five, then you get a, a, a golden jacket or some other paraphernalia. But uh, Dr. Alan Gelzo, who is the Thomas W. Smith Distinguished Research Scholar in the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. That's a long, distinguished title, and he's taught at many other places and has written many books. And I am having him on today. As you can tell, uh, he is one of my favorite authors and historians and an all-around delightful guy to talk to. So, Our Ancient Faith, Lincoln, Democracy, and the American Experiment, which is either just out or just about to come out by uh, Alfred Knopf. I always wondered how you say the name. They insist that the K has to be pronounced, so it's Knopf. Oh, really? Oh, that's the first thing you're corrected about. Even if they don't even look, they don't even look at the text that you've written that they're supposed to be editing. First thing is make sure it's Knopf. Knopf. Uh, Dr. Gelzo, or Alan, if I may, thank you for being with us. I just asked you before we hit record, so I'll ask you again. Uh, we're recording this on, on Monday morning. Did you watch any of the Super Bowl last night? No. I ha- have you ever I, watched I, a Super Bowl? I have never watched a Super Bowl. Is is that a is that now a a point of deliberate intention? I've 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 gone this long, or simply no interest in the Super Bowl. Simply no interest in the Super Bowl. Are you a sports guy in any other way? Not terribly much. Although one major exception I do make for it is baseball. And well, good. Speak it, like a true American historian. If if I'm if I have any sport bones in me at all, uh, they are the bones of a baseball person. And it won't surprise you that I spend some time with baseball history. And well, that may be for another broadcast. Yes. And um, I, have you talked to George Will about baseball history? The very first time I met George, and this was. Oh, I, I guess 20 years ago. The first question I asked him was <clears throat> the likelihood of unassisted triple plays. So we <laughs> we didn't waste any time. They're very, very unlikely. Very unlikely, but he was able to give some examples. I bet he was. Well, thank you for, for being here. What were you doing uh, instead of watching... The Super Bowl. Something Lincoln, I hope? Uh, yes, I was working on a Lincoln text, uh, actually his letter to James Cook Conkling from August of 1863, because one of the projects I'm in the middle of is preparing an edition of Lincoln's political writings for Cambridge University Press. So it'll be a single freestanding book with all of Lincoln's major political comments and writings. And the Conkling letter is a very important uh, item in that collection. Nothing like that exists yet, I would think, with so many collections. There's, there's nothing quite like that. The Conkling letter tends to turn up in almost every anthology of Lincoln's writings, and there have been numerous anthologies through the 19th century, in fact. But Cambridge University Press is creating a series of American political writings, uh, 
And it has done volumes on Hamilton. It's done volumes on George Washington. It has in prospect a volume on John Jay. And one of the things they wanted to do and include in that series was a volume of Lincoln's political writings. So the editors of the series uh, suggested that perhaps I might be interested in doing that volume. Before we jump back into Lincoln, I'm just curious. You Surely you're, you're involved at some level with some people, maybe at the highest level of the government, I don't know, but in planning for... 2026, 250th uh, anniversary celebrations. Are you doing any of that? Not really. I spoke one time to a commission for the 250th anniversary of independence, but that was simply speaking at one meeting about, in fact, what I was doing was reflecting on the experience of 50 years before at the time of the bicentennial. There, I was, I was very active, uh, I was actually, in those days, I was a tour guide uh, during the Bicentennial oh. in Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And I, I wound up with many interesting stories to tell about the groups that I piloted through uh, Independence Hall, through what was then the Liberty Bell Pavilion, and so on like that. But what has really surprised me has been the apparent lack of interest in the approaching 250th anniversary of independence. I did some consulting uh, two years ago for Carpenters Hall as they were preparing Mm -hmm. for the anniversary of the first Continental Congress, which would, of course, be this year, the 250th anniversary of that meeting in October of 1774. But as much work as we put into planning for events and applying for funding to the National Endowment for the Humanities, we were turned down. Really? So there's, there has, what has really struck me is how very little uh, public interest uh, there has seemed to be in the approaching 250th anniversary of independence. Certainly nothing, nothing like the explosion, the frenzy almost, of attention and interest that we saw back in the 1970s. Let's jump into the Lincoln book. So, Alan, first question. You, you've, you've written a, a great biography, and we've talked about it before uh, on Lincoln. So why another Lincoln book, and how is this one different? This is a different book because almost everything I've written about Lincoln up to this point has been a narrative. I'm a history person. Narrative is one of the principal tools that historians have for communicating with people. This is, this is a different kind of book. This is thematic. This is topics. And rather than giving you a start date and an end date, what I do is invite people to come and talk about themes, and especially themes connected with democracy, and what we can learn from Lincoln about them. And it's occurred to me to take this different angle and to approach this subject because these have not been happy times for this thing we call democracy. Um, They haven't been happy times in a number of ways. I can remember growing up that it just seemed in those days like the old Soviet Union, the whole block of communist countries, seem to have such power, such influence. We just seem to 
shrink in comparison, mm-hmm. and you you were fearful of the future. And then, and then in 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down, and two years later, the Soviet Union implodes. I thought I'd never live to see anything quite so dramatic, and it appeared at that moment that democracy was on this this rising arc that that Francis Fukuyama was right. We had arrived at the end of, at the end of history, and that end was democracy. And that lasted for a while. And then it began to crumble. It began to crumble, I think, really with 9-11. And ever since, we have been watching the long withdrawing roar of democracy in so many different places. We're now dealing with a Russia that had a brief moment to stand in the sunlight of democracy and then has lapsed back into authoritarianism. We've seen one of the great world economies. Some people wonder if it may not be the single biggest world economy in the hands of a totalitarian system. We have seen democracy under assault, collapsing from within, place after place after place, and even in our own country. We have had questions posed to us. Is this democracy thing really workable? Does it have so many problems, so many internal contradictions that, in fact, it's going to fail? There is an almost palpable sense of anxiety mm-hmm. about this. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe people are surprised if I don't follow the Super Bowl, but they may be more surprised if I quote as an authority on this, Elmo. <laughs> also a surprise, yes. <laughs> oh, well, I only noticed this because it popped up on, on a news feed. But the Elmo character, you know, Sesame right. Street and so on like that. It, it, apparently, Elmo tweets, and he tweeted uh, two weeks ago uh, something to the effect, how are you all doing? The answers he got back were a <laughs> tsunami of depression. Right. Like, like things are terrible. I, I, I can hardly wait to get from Monday to Friday. I, I can hardly get out of bed in the mornings. Everyone just seemed to be in need of some kind of comfort. And I think a lot of it is is attached to our fears that what we're calling democracy is in some way in danger. Well, there's a sense, I think, in which democracy always feels that it's in danger. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of, the, one of the things we need to tell ourselves is democracy is constantly constantly at all times, 24-7, telling itself what danger it's in and what problems it's encountering. And the funny thing is, we're very alert to problems that turn out really not to be all that serious, but at the same time, also totally oblivious to things that really do turn out to be problems. And yet, and yet we have encountered grave situations this way and recovered, come back. Democracy is so much more resilient than we think that it is. And yet the voices are all around us that tell us, well, this is, this is problematic. There are voices, of course, on the left side of the spectrum, and they are suspicious of democracy. They don't trust people. Uh, they think uh, that people, by and large, belong in a basket of deplorables. You've heard that phrase. Yeah. 
and there's a there's a there's a kind of contempt that is very clear in that, and which is deeply resented by the people who hear about or read about that. But at the same time, on the right end of the spectrum, there are also people who announce to us that democracy has failed because democracy has no particular moral commitments since what you do in a democracy is you cultivate individual rights and anybody can claim any kind of bizarre behavior as their personal right and in a democracy, what right do you have to restrain them? And the argument is, well, this is eating away at the foundations of any viable mm -hmm. human c culture and human society. So democracy, in fact, is um, an enemy to a moral society. And these are voices, as I say, which I hear uh, to the right side of the spectrum. There is a pervasive sense in so many quarters that democracy is just not working. And so I, in these topical pieces that compose our ancient faith, have suggested that perhaps we should look to a figure from the past who can tell us about democracy in a time of extremely grave crisis, which is the American Civil War. And is there something that this man, Lincoln, can tell us about democracy, which first of all will explain to us what it is, and secondly may give us some realistic hope for the future. And in large measure, that is what I've written the book for. The book's dedicated to my grandchildren. Yeah, I saw that. I liked that. Yeah. Part of it, I suppose, is sentimental. But another part is a way of saying, I am passing on to you, a generation to come, a recommendation about hope. In this case, political hope, but still hope. And I think you can derive some measure of that hope from consulting this particular person that I'm describing to you, which is Abraham Lincoln. So that's, that's very well well put in, in summarizing. Well, we're going to get to the hope part, like a good uh, you know reformed anthropologist here. I'm going to spend some time on the bad news for a little bit. Uh, so you talked about this left and the right, and you, you note several times at the, at the beginning of the book, at the end, you talk about, and you just said it, kind of our, as a American people, our ancient creed, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a generation after you. I grew up in public schools in Michigan, and so maybe, maybe it's, it was different in the South, and I'm sure it's different today, but I just think I kind of grew up with, uh, you go from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution to Lincoln's interpretation of it at the Gettysburg Address, and then you maybe add in as one of our other sacred texts sort of the I Have a Dream speech, because that needs to remedy what was a massive blind spot, and in, not even blind often, but just evil inconsistency, not living up to our ideals. And it maybe I was naive, but it seemed like there was a shared kind of idea of what America is about. You say at the end, you know, when America was founded, we didn't have toga-draped elders. We didn't have an established church. We didn't have—but but what we had were these sets of ideals that ran through these founding documents, and then Lincoln's grasping of them at the Gettysburg Address— 
So was I wrong to think that there used to be, I mean, it's always been contentious, I get that, but there used to be more of a shared consensus, and if there was, how did this fall apart? I certainly can remember growing up and thinking that there was such a consensus, although I think I probably was simplifying, Mm. as you do when you're young. In truth, I think we've always been contesting aspects of what we hold in common. And yes, there is the Declaration of Independence, and yes, there is the Constitution. Yes, there is I Have a Dream. Yes, there is Mr. Gorbachev, Tear Down This Mm -hmm. Wall. These are some great moments. But in between those moments, there's furious contest, often dissent, contradiction. There were people, for instance, in the 1850s, and this troubled Lincoln a great deal, who quite frankly came to the conclusion that the Declaration of Independence was wrong. One major example of that, of course, was John Calhoun. Mm -hmm. Calhoun looked at the Declaration of Independence and said, no, this was a mistake. All men are not created equal. American heretic? Is that what you called him? (laughs) Didn't you write a review? Yeah, yeah. Yes. I am not an admirer of John Uh Calhoun. I visited Calhoun's home, by the way. I was speaking at Clemson. Uh, university. And Clemson, of course, was built around what originally had been uh, Calhoun's property. So Calhoun's home is preserved there. But I I did go and and make the visit. I did write in the guest book. I did, well, I wrote, you know, name, address from an an admirer of Abraham Lincoln. Oh, you did? I, I am the sort, Kevin, you have to understand, when I'm invited to Atlanta, I ask to be taken to the General Sherman Monument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could see you doing that, yes. Yeah, a little, little snarky strain in me. Calhoun is probably the most well-known person who raises these doubts about the Declaration, but he's not alone. Many Southern intellectuals did the same thing, and not just Southern intellectuals, there were their Northern counterparts. Lincoln was scandalized when a senator from Indiana got up in the Senate, gave a speech saying the same thing. Declaration was wrong. This isn't really true that all men are created equal. So we have certainly had our times of consensus, but we've also had our times mm-hmm. of extraordinary division. I think we are in one of those times of division. I think we are in one of those times when people have tried to explain to us the past in terms of selfishness and sometimes illusion. I've been a severe critic of the 1619 Project. I think the 1619 Project speaks in pretty much the same accents that we heard from John C. Calhoun. The American experiment is a fraud. Mm -hmm. So... Alongside the consensus, there has also been dissent and dissension. And in the case that I'm citing, it brought us to civil war and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. So I don't mean to ignore the consensus, but I also think that we have to pay some serious attention to why the dissension is there, what it says, because at least on one occasion in the past, we paid a pretty severe price for it. Yeah. And and what did Lincoln then mean by some of these terms? So you, you argue Lincoln was a classical liberal, 
and he believed in democracy. So give us a, a layman's understanding of what Lincoln would have understood. And maybe, I don't know if he used the word liberal. He certainly talked about democracies. But what do mm-hmm. you mean by, by Lincoln's uh, embrace of those two isms? Liberalism in the 19th century meant John Locke in large measure. It's John Locke who really formulates much of what we call a definition of liberalism. And that's particularly true in two sources of Locke. One is his two treatises on government, and the other is his writing on religious toleration. In the two treatises on government, Locke borrows a page from an ongoing intellectual revolution in Europe that had begun at almost at the, the onset of the 17th century. And that was an intellectual revolution which, which abolished the notion of hierarchy. It started by questioning the hierarchical structure of the universe, the physical world, that had been taught by Aristotle and by medieval scholastics that the universe was a hierarchy, the earth was at the center or the bottom, and then there were this grade, this, this cursus of honor that existed. And everything in the universe functioned according to this hierarchy. Galileo and Newton undermined the science, so to speak, the Aristotelian science that lay behind that by saying, no, that's, that, that there is no, there's no hierarchy in the heavens. Uh, rather, the heavens move by natural physical law. So there's no hierarchy there. All right, well, that established a new scientific way of understanding the physical universe. It wouldn't take terribly long before many people began saying, well, what about the political universe? Mm-hmm. The political universe up to that time also was governed as a hierarchy. You had the king at the top of a hierarchical pyramid, and beneath him the nobles, beneath him the commoners, and Beneath them, the people in the worst possible condition, maybe serfs, maybe slaves, but still it was a hierarchy. And authority, sovereignty, that relied that resided with the king and then flowed down the, the, the hierarchy or the pyramid. And Locke borrows a page, so to speak, from the new science and says, no, that's not the way politics are. Hierarchy is not the way politics are. Do a thought experiment. A group of people are cast away on an island. What are they going to do? Well, the first thing they want to do is is eat. <laughs> I'm wondering where the next dinner is coming from. So what are they going to do? They're all going to set to work to provide for food so they can eat. And maybe they're going to go out in the woods and hunt. Maybe they're going to plant crops. But they're going to find a way to survive. Then it occurs to them that they need to protect their hunting and their agriculture. Because there may be some members of that community who don't want to work. They don't want to contribute to that for a variety of reasons. They'd rather take from others who are doing that work. So what do you do? You have to hire somebody to be the police. And Locke says, aha, we have just discovered government. Right. And what people do is they surrender a certain part of their liberty to a governing authority so that that governing authority can protect their property and their lives. Now, I'm saying something which resounds in our ears as a perfectly logical, normal way of describing government. Oh, that wasn't the normal way in Locke's time. See, what Locke was doing was saying government starts at the bottom. People look at each other and they say, 
We're in a state of nature. Anything goes. People can do violent things to us. We need to organize. And they organize. And what, whatever it is they organize is something they do. The organization's authority is derived from the people who make it. And Locke's conclusion was, if a governing authority the people create to secure their lives and their property isn't doing its job, then they could take it apart, build another one. Well, where have we heard that idea before? Ah, wait, the Declaration of Independence. So liberalism is built, first of all, on the assumption that there's no hierarchy. Secondly, it's built on the assumption that people organize their own government, and the authority of that government comes from the people who have created it. And a third assumption is that the most important thing that that government can do is to protect the individual rights, the lives, the property, the survival of the people that it's supposed to be governing. So when you take those three things, that importance of the individual, the importance of their decision in creating government, and the fact that government starts from the bottom and draws its authority from the people, there you're talking classical liberalism. And what is the form that this classical liberalism should take? Well, liberalism doesn't necessarily mandate democracy. John Locke, for instance, was not living in a democracy. Right. In 1688, when he publishes the two treatises, Britain is still a monarchy and still a very closed-door monarchy. Britain, in fact, will be overwhelmingly governed by its great noble families, really almost exclusively until 1906, when the first non-titled, non-knighted, non-elite non person becomes a member of a cabinet. So uh, what liberalism mandates, so to speak, is not a particular form, democracy, but, and, and here's where the American experiment becomes significant. When, when Locke wrote the two treatises and also wrote about religious toleration as a concomitant of that, he was, he was writing to people proposing a thought experiment. Americans in what was then Britain's North American colonies looked at that and said, wait, that's not a thought experiment. That's we're that's, doing that, it. Yeah, that's what we've done from the very beginning. We, I, I know that it's not, it's not terribly much of a compliment to look back on our colonial forebears in this way, but the truth is, Kevin, Britain took all of its unwanteds, all of, all of, its, all of its oddballs, all of its square pegs that didn't fit in a round hole, all, literally, all of its kind of religious nuts with guns, if I can use that phrase. Dissenters, and, yes. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it and it's basically sent them all to America. Um, America was, was the stream they flushed all their unwanteds into, and it was, goodbye, have a nice trip across the Atlantic, and don't let us hear from you again. Sometimes that was characterized as Britain's benign neglect of its colonies, but that is really what what happened. The, you know, Britain didn't spend any money. It didn't try to protect its colonies. If a colony succeeded, well, good for it. If it didn't succeed, too bad. It's no skin off our nose. But please don't expect us to assume any responsibility, fiscal or otherwise. So the Britain's North American colonies had to go look out for themselves. And so they did. They set up their own little ad hoc legislatures. 
They established their own towns. They created their own commerce. Now, mind you, all those legislatures were technically illegal. They didn't so much break law as they didn't have any standing. The only legislature Britain right. recognized was Parliament. But Americans did this. And what shocked Americans was from the 1760s onwards, when Britain decided, wait a minute, you know, these colonies have gotten very prosperous. <laughs> uh, we would like to extract value from them. And so there begins the long train of legislation, which leads to the revolution. Americans balked at that. Why? We've already always governed ourselves. Locke gave you a thought experiment, but we've been putting it into practice. So for us, democracy was the logical form that governing our lives as colonies took. And we saw no reason when we read Locke to think that there was anything unnatural or fanciful about that. We took those habits, we threw off British rule, and we set ourselves up to govern ourselves in the way we had been governing ourselves. So you get a combination. You get a combination of Locke's theory, and you get a combination of the practical realities in which Britain's North American colonies had set themselves up. And what do you get? You get American democracy. And it's captured in the Declaration of Independence, and in a more formal way, in our Constitution. Constitution. I'm, I'm working on a, a chapter uh, at, here at Reform Theological Seminary. We're putting together a big, massive book that's going to be... Uh, academic chapters on each of the chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so I've been assigned the one that has to do with the civil magistrate because I'm, you know, John Witherspoon guy and this. Well, I mean, what's what I'm tracing down is, of course, that's the one that the American Presbyterians changed significantly. And not only by 1788 and 1789, when the National Presbyterian Church, almost literally across the street from you know, from the the Philadelphia Convention, right there in Philadelphia. But even before that, in 1729, with the Adopting Act, they've already said at 1729, the Presbyterians have, we want you, Presbyterians need to subscribe to the Westminster Confession, but, oh, by the way, we don't mean this stuff about the civil magistrate. And so I'm, I'm trying to trace why that is, because it's not like it's just something that happens as you cross the Atlantic, that you change, but it has something to do with the sort of people who are coming, as you said, and one of the things happening in Presbyterian history at this time are one of these uh, abjuration oaths that the Presbyterians had had to take uh, toward the, the king, and there was something in there, just a little fine clause. Okay, they could, they could take an oath that they would not be against the Protestant... Uh, succession of kings. They were Protestants. They wanted a Protestant king. They weren't yet thinking of democracy. But there was a little clause in there that it said, oh, by the way, and that he ought to be a member of the Church of England. And the Presbyterians in Scotland thought this was absolutely unacceptable. So that's some of what's in the background, which already these Scots and Scots-Irish who are here are saying, wait a second, we've already experience, and you have the law of patronage, which is interfering with who can be the pastors in their churches, they're already saying, I'm not sure that we want to give the civil magistrate as much power. And one of the things in, in the discussion going on even today is some people are saying, sort of wistfully looking back, if only we could reclaim 
the magisterial reformer's view of church and government with established churches and enforcing both tables of the law. And some reformed Christians are looking back and saying, you know, that's really, they really got that right. And that's really our heritage. And as a reformed Christian, I want to say, now, wait a minute. It didn't take long for people, uh, once you weren't on the top mm-hmm. making those decisions, you weren't so sure you liked that. One of the things you 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 put this really with a pregnant phrase, Alan. You said in the book, uh, one of the golden rules of democracy is do not do unto others what you would not want them doing to you, and then follow the own the rules that you want establish for others. That is. If you would not want someone to force their religious establishment upon you, don't do it upon another. Now, I'd love for you to talk about that, either your own view, Alan, or you can go channel it through Lincoln, but uh, you're you're a, a, a serious Christian, and I'm sure you think of these things as a historian, but also as a Christian. What sort of response would you give to some Christians who say, well, wait a minute. I think that uh, the purpose of government is to work for the common good, and that common good ought to be towards our heavenly good, and therefore, maybe this democracy and this liberalism thing was a mistake. Maybe Locke, well, didn't Locke, hadn't he heard of Romans 13? Isn't this whole mm-hmm. social contract theory uh, sort of sub-Christian? How would you, or you can use Lincoln, though think you're right, he wasn't much of a Christian. Uh, how would you respond to these sort of Christian objections? I hear a great deal of this, too, and, and not without a certain measure of sympathy, because here are, are good people whose souls are vexed, mm-hmm. like Lot in Sodom, at the kind of public behavior that now seems to be not only tolerated, but in some cases ac- actively agitated for. Or the new religion of the state, if you look or at the, the or, flags or, or, that Yeah, fly. or even that. Yeah, yeah. And they want to respond to that, and they want to say, no, no, no. We, what we really should be doing is putting back in place the Ten Commandments. We should be putting the two tables of the law uh, back in place, and that should be our standard of judgment. And there's one part of me which says, I think, that would be an excellent thing to do. Uh, I would have to say that the tables of the law t- tell us what the ideals of human behavior and human society should be, and these are God's expectations for us. But there's a great difference between God's expectations of us and our ability to discern mm. and enforce them. And sometimes some of my Reformed brothers who are very very trenchant on this subject of how far American society, how far American society seems to have drifted in immoral directions. Their reformed concern has forgot one of the chief cornerstones of reformed doctrine, which is total depravity. That's right. And it is not difficult to see, once you reflect on it, that no human being is trustworthy as a human being with the kinds of authority that some people are talking about. Yes, it grieves me. Yes, I am vexed by the behavior of many people in public 
and especially about the way that that behavior sometimes seems to be sanctioned. But at the same time, I also understand that the moment I put into someone else's hands the kind of authority that would be necessary in dealing with that, I also run a serious risk because no matter how well-intentioned that person is, that person is still a sinner. Mm-hmm. That, that is someone who is still afflicted with depravity. I am afflicted with it. I would not want that power. And limitations on power, first of all, are one of the cornerstones of the American experiment. But limitations in power are also one of the cornerstones of the Reformed experience. Because where else, where else did Reformed theology shine at its best except in environments when it was protesting unilateral and total authority. <clears throat> the Westminster Confession, this is 1648. Have we reflected on what the year 1648 marked? England was in civil war. England was in revolt against an absolutist king, Charles II. Uh, Charles I. And in fact, in January of 1649, they will actually take the step of trying and executing, executing their king. The king. Yeah. So we, we were, we're dealing with an environment here in which, yes, there are serious problems. Are we going to make them better? Do we have within ourselves the capacity to completely rewrite everybody's uh, lives? Or are we going to make just as awful a mess when power is put into our hands? I mean, understand something. There, there, are, two, there are two great forces in, in human politics and human society. One is liberty and the other is power. Liberty is a desirable thing. We all want liberty. At the same time, we're not sure we want the other person to have the liberty to do the things that they're doing that we don't like. So that's the moment when we want to reach for power. Now, the problem is that power is toxic. Power is like something radioactive. It's like radium, polonium. Even in very small amounts, it poisons relationships. And this is why the American founders, particularly in the Constitution, are at such pains to limit power. It's not because they're trying to hamstring government. Almost all of them were involved in government in some way or another. What they understood was that power is toxic. What you want to do is maximize liberty. Sometimes that means taking a risk. Sometimes it means making the people, meaning that, that people are going to behave in reprehensible fashion. But you take just as much a risk, if not more, by trying to cure it with this radioactive power. So you have to have some power in a society. I mean, someone has to be responsible for keeping the traffic lights on. Mm-hmm. But the founders understood that what you want to do is you want to use power at its absolute minimum. And you want to maximize liberty because you'd rather take the risks of liberty than to run the more, much more palpable risks of power. And the members of the Westminster Assembly in 1648 always had right in front of them a vivid illustration of what power could do to them. And that vivid illustration was King Charles I. So they, they, un- they understood this relationship. And that principle of liberty of conscience becomes a huge principle for the American Revolution. I mean, there is, there is yes. a, mm-hmm. you know, a mingling of 
Enlightenment ideas and Christian ideas. But of course, in the 18th century, people weren't thinking, well, I got team Enlightenment and I have team Christian, and they're very different. There, there were a whole mingling of ideas. One of the, one of the ways, so I teach an elective course here on the, the history of the Enlightenment, and when I get to some of the American founding and Enlightenment ideas, I say there, there are two different ways you can conceive of government. So one way is to say, what could all of the people in a society, if they were really brought together under one enlightened purpose, what great good could they accomplish? And let's devise a government that can move people toward this great common good. That's the goal of government, to help us as a people accomplish some great thing. The other view is, what will a group of people tend to do when they coalesce? And how can government prevent the worst excesses of human nature? And clearly, the founders leaned more in that second direction, which is why the watchword was, as you said, liberty, as the commercial now says, liberty, 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 uh, for the insurance company. It was liberty. They had in their mind, what are the bad things that can happen, and how can a government prevent those, Where I, whereas I want to say even to many of my conservative friends today that I think, dear friends, some of you have embraced a very not-so-reformed anthropology in how you view the purposes of government because of an overconfidence in if only our people had the power. If only our mm-hmm. people, and, it, and it's easy to look, and I agree with you, it is vexing, and you sympathize when you say, well, look at what they're doing. Look at how their side is doing. And if w- we have to play by these new rules, and so we're going to use, they're using that power against us. If we only had the power, we could use it against them, which is as old as time immemorial. And I think there's some wisdom. Of course, the founding, American founding isn't you know, it's consistent with Christian principles. I would never say it's the only way Christians can have a government. Of course it's not. But Lincoln, you point out, said, and I'm going from memory from your book, but that he said in, in one piece, you know, government really had three functions. It was to defend the people against foreign nations. It was to defend the people against each other. And then it was some basic public works. So he he, he put it, Kevin, he put it in a very simple formula. He said government should do for the people whatever it is they can't do in their individual capacities or can't do nearly so well uh, hmm. acting jointly. Anything else, he said, anything else beyond that should be left to people. He gave some a handful of examples. He talked about insane asylums. He talked about houses of refuge for the poor. He talked about statutes that governed the descent of property through wills and estates. Mm. His government government has a legitimate service to provide in that. But as soon as you move beyond that, Lincoln got very, very dicey about it. Because when you do that, then you start to move not only away from democracy, you begin to move to oligarchy. Uh, but you also begin to put more trust 
in human behavior than you really should. If there's a a one-sentence word of wisdom that I think the American experiment captures, it goes back to someone I, I will call one of our Reformed brethren, Oliver Cromwell. Spe- uh, yes. Speaking speaking to the to the Scots and saying to them, I bethink you that you may be mistaken. Hmm. And it seems to me that there's one very good thing that Reformed theology will constantly remind us of. It is at that frailty of reason, that sense in which we might be mistaken. And in that respect, democracy has an important lesson to teach, not about arrogance. Now, sometimes we can be arrogant. <clears throat> we are the democracy. Therefore, we are superior to everybody else. I think what democracy should teach us, first and foremost, is a measure of humility. That democracy is always reflecting on the fact that whoever is in charge at a given moment might be wrong. Mm-hmm. There might be a majority that rallies around you and supports a particular policy, and you go on with that, and it seems like that's that's the way things go. What do you do then with the minority, the dissenters? Well, if you are arrogant, you will suppress the dissenters. They will annoy you. So you put them up against a barn wall and shoot them. Is that what democracy is? No, democracy says, if you're in a majority right now, next week something might occur. That's right. Which which persuades you that, no, in fact, you were wrong. (laughs) And the minority was right. And then the minority becomes the majority and they rule. And if they're functioning as a democracy should, they will not put you, the new minority, up against the barn wall and shoot you. There's an element of hesitation, of humility, of realizing the other guy sometimes might be right. And I think that that humility is a virtue that we recognize as Christians. So while I'm not, I'm not going to be someone who will insist, well, democracy is the Christian way to do government. No, the Christian way to do government is to submit to the sovereignty of God mm-hmm. in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Um, But it is a form of government which does involve and embrace at least one Christian virtue, and that is humility. Yeah, well put. Let me circle back to Lincoln. I'm I'm overdue to mention a couple of books sponsoring this episode. First, I want to mention Crisis of Confidence, Reclaiming the Historic Faith in a Culture Consumed with Individualism and Identity by Carl Truman. So Carl has been on the the podcast several times, and Carl is a good friend, and this is a great book about the importance for Christians. Here we are talking about history and sort of cultural creeds, but even more important are Christian creeds. So check out that book by Crossway, and I also want to thank Desiring God and a new book, Ask Pastor John, 750 Bible Answers to Life's Most Important Questions. I did a blurb for this book. It's really remarkable in that it's, Piper said uh, he was doing, a, making up for a lifetime of sermon applications. And so all of these episodes he's done where people ask him anything, and they've, uh, Tony Ranke has put together and summarized 750 of these. It's really amazing. So check that out from Desiring God. 
I want to go back to what you were you were saying there, Alan, and think about. Uh, you, you say at the very beginning that certainly the American experiment, it was understood that you needed to have some shared mores. And there's lots of famous instances of this from George Washington and many others about the importance of virtue, that a republic and a democracy cannot exist without some shared virtue. And even though the founders were anything from very stalwart Presbyterians and evangelicals to latitudinarians to Unitarians, there was yet a shared sense virtue was necessary. And by and large, what they had in mind was some kind of Protestant Christianity is going to produce that. And even when you get to Lincoln, and you've argued in this book and in your wonderful biography, though he grew up surrounded by a very strict sort of Calvinism, and that did influence his way of probably viewing providence and the sovereignty of God, yet he never joined a church or expressed a a Christian creed for himself, and yet at the same time he said he never wanted to speak ill of any Christian denomination. So he seems to have this same idea that the founders had 80 years prior, that virtue mattered, and some kind of Christian faith was important, or at least a respect for the Christian faith. So one, have I accurately summarized Lincoln there? And two, application here, what then can we do if it seems like that interest in virtue and the Christian foundations for that societal virtue have almost disappeared? Well, we need to work. Yeah. A lot of the times I hear people say, well, America was once a Christian nation. And what they're usually thinking of is George Washington kneeling in the snows at Valley Forge. <laughs> right. It's a great painting. I know. Great, <laughs> great painting. One, one witness, one witness ever claimed to have seen that happen. Uh-huh. And, that, and there, there's some uncertainty about that. But there's a, there's a commonly held idea that America begins as a Christian nation. And somewhere along the way, usually fairly recently, we have lost that and we've become a nation purely dedicated to self-interest, selfishness, self-preoccupation, a kind of nation of narcissists, if I can borrow an image from Christopher Lash's mm-hmm. great book. I think, there's, I think there's fundamental problems with that. Were we founded as a Christian nation? Well, certainly there were Christians involved in the founding of the American Republic. One British, disgruntled British observer said that the, that the American Revolution was mainly a Scots-Irish Presbyterian right. revolt. Following right, J- Johnny Weatherspoon. Oh, yeah. uh, there were references to the, the so-called uh, Black Regiment, not about race, but about Presbyterian ministers in black gowns mm-hmm. exhorting their, their congregations. Uh, and yet, when you look at the founding documents, exactly what does emerge from them? Well, Thomas Jefferson will talk about nature and nature's God. I'm sorry, that's not the Westminster Confession. <laughs> you look at the Constitution. There's no reference to God in the Constitution. And that's despite the plea of Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, of all people, at the Constitutional Convention, that they should open their sessions with prayer. Mm. He makes this eloquent appeal, and the response is silence. And that's, okay, now for the order of business today. Mm. 
So were we founded as a Christian nation? I think that's an assumption that people are making on some dubious grounds. What is true, I think, though, is that we became one. And we became one very much through the energies of what we sometimes call the Second Great Awakening. Right. The 19th century actually looks different than 1776. Oh, it certainly does. John Murren, who taught at Princeton for many years, made this observation one time, that if you want to measure the distance American culture moves between the Revolution and the Civil War, look at what people sang. In 1776, they're singing Yankee Doodle Dandy. In 1862, they're singing Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that John really captured something vivid in there. All right, a little bit of a colorful exaggeration, but some real truth there. This event, we often focus a lot on the Great Awakening of the 1740s, 1739 to 1742. That's usually the good one for... That's the good one, right. Yeah, right. Because that's, it's Jonathan Edwards, it's George Whitfield, it's Mm -hmm. Gilbert Tennant, it's a a lot of the heroes, especially reformed heroes. Mm -hmm. We, We sometimes forget how epical an event the Second Great Awakening was. Because the, the, the first Great Awakening, yes, it gives us figures like Edwards and Whitfield and Tennant. But it also was much smaller in scope. Mm-hmm. It, it was western Massachusetts, western Connecticut. It was some parts of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, a little bit of Maryland. And there were large stretches of British America that it didn't touch. So we sometimes forget that. But in the 19th century... It's very different. And you have, for one thing, a much longer period of time with which to trace this. I think I've seen some estimates that will run this maybe from about 1810 till 1835. But it's it's an epical event. It is a meteorite strike in American culture. And Richard Carwadine, who I think has done more than anyone else in tracking the impact of this great awakening in American culture, has said that by the time we get to the generation of the Civil War, something like 40% of the American population are either members of evangelical churches or else attenders at Mm -hmm. it. And it's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary percentage. How did that happen? It, It happened because people did extraordinary amounts of work which was blessed by the Spirit of God, but they, they set to it with their shoulders to, to the wheel of moving people's hearts and minds. And churches and institutions. And churches and institutions, right. and the growth of those churches and institutions was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially Methodist and Baptist the Methodists start out in the 1790s as almost nothing. And by the time we get to the Civil War, they're one of the, the great denominations on the American landscape. But everybody, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, uh, Baptists, across the boards, there's an extraordinary explosion of religious interest and growth that transforms American culture. So when I, when I hear people say today, oh, if we could only get back to a Christian America— my response is, then we need 
to work as hard as the people who created the Second Great Awakening. We need to dedicate ourselves that way. Rather than sitting on our hands, complaining about it, whining about the situation we find ourselves in, and then imagining, as as I'm afraid some of our friends do, that all we need to do is to put some kind of authoritarian regime in place that will enforce the Ten Commandments. No, that's the lazy way. If you really want to transform the culture, then you have to take on the culture itself, and you have to meet it on its own terms, and you, you're going to have to arm wrestle with it. And my recommendation is that we take a serious leaf out of the book hmm. of the Second Great Awakening. If what we want are the, the recovery of those mores, then my recommendation is that that's a, that, that is a signal that some very hard work has to get done. And we're not going to accomplish it simply by waving our hands and introducing some kind of authoritarian solution. Yeah, I've said before to people, it's it's fascinating, and I'm sure it's for a reason, that at this very moment when there are talks about Catholic integralism or a, you know, a, a, a neo kind of theological Caesar to reign over us with benevolent tyranny in a Christian way, at the time when we've been never been farther away from the possibility of these things— they're becoming a point of some intellectual discussion. And I think that's not an irony. I think that's that's the point, because it seems like something has been lost, and I think we can acknowledge some really painful things have been lost. But because of that, there's this energy that says the way to get it back is if if we could, maybe we could rack up a couple of elections, and maybe we could... We could turn this around. One of the things and, I was fascinated— and, and, and you know what You know what we'll do then? Yes, let's suppose we could elect all of our brethren to all the major and significant political offices. What will we have elected? We will have elected people just like ourselves who are sinners, hmm. and we will make mistakes. And after we make the mistakes, how are we going to explain that? All we said going up to it was just give us the power— will change everything around. I'm not sure I want to give people, even the best of people, that power. I don't want that power given to me. Because that was kind I of the lesson of, of Tolkien's ring. Yes, exactly. And in that respect, Tolkien's ring is a fable not only and I and I don't I use I don't use the word fable in a pejorative sense. Mm-hmm. I mean as an instructive lesson. Not only for the world he was writing in, the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. But but it is a permanent feature that if you put into people's hands the power to do great things, you also run the risk of them doing terrible things. And I have to say there's probably no better example of this than King Solomon. Hmm. King Solomon is supposed to be the wisest of rulers. And yet look what wreckage he made of his own life. Look what happened to his kingdom, the kingdom he inherits from his father. Look what happens to that kingdom afterwards. So you can, you can talk as long as you like about oh, what we would do if we had the power. My anxiety is because I, I take total depravity <laughs> seriously. My anxiety is that we don't lose our depravity just because we have good intentions. Yeah. Let, let me ask you a couple of questions, if, if, I, if I can keep you for just a few more minutes. Uh, 
So one uncomfortable question with Lincoln. Was Abraham Lincoln a racist? You talk about that in some detail in defining, well, what do we mean? So how you must get that question often. And how do you answer it to someone who doesn't have doesn't have an hour, but they have a couple of minutes and they want to know, you're a Lincoln expert. I, re- I read what he said at the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Is Lincoln a racist? Should we tear down his statues, which is the next question, but let's just stick with the first one. I'll respond with a question to that. Does a racist take black men, put them in the blue uniforms of the United States, put weapons in their hands, and tell them to go out and kill other racists? Does a racist do that? I haven't heard too much in the way of significant Mm -hmm. answers to that question. Mm -hmm. Does he say things? Yes. The problem is that in the 19th century, a lot of people were saying all kinds of contradictory things that way. Some of the most prominent abolitionists would say things that we today would shrink at. Right. Uh, So in some respects, I'm not surprised that Lincoln does that. But fundamentally, was he a racist? Did he have retrograde thinking on the subject of race? Sometimes he did. And sometimes we're tempted, and I say this in the book itself, sometimes we're tempted to think that Lincoln was a racist and his whole approach to emancipation was limited by that racism. No, I think we have to invert that. Uh, this this is a man, yes, who had some retrograde, what we would regard as retrograde yeah. thinking on the subject of race. But his commitment to emancipation for everyone was so profound that that commitment overrides whatever defects there were in his thinking about race. Stack him up against the people of his own age rather than judging him by our own, and he, he is a much more forward thinker. But I think that even even if we don't want to do the context argument, which I'm very dicey about, mm-hmm. if we want to say, as, as some people sometimes do to excuse Lincoln, well, he was a man of his times. All right, if he was a man of his times, then he has no lessons for ours. If, if we want to say, yes, he does have lessons for our times, we have to take him on our terms as well as the terms of his own day. But even if we take him on our own terms... What we see is a man whose commitment to emancipation, to freedom for everyone was so profound that it overrode even whatever baggage he might otherwise have had on the subject of race. So, very well put. What would you say to one of the other arguments you talk about in the book is, well, Lincoln, for whatever he said about these limited, his limited purposes for government— a, cons- uh, a critique from the right has often been he really was the founder of big government. He was l- paving the way for for the, the New Deal, uh, suspending uh, habeas corpus and raising the profile of government initiatives during the Civil War. He's the big government Trojan horse in American history. I can only say, come on. All right, here is a civil war. You don't fight a civil war, as he put it, with elder stalks charged with rosewater. Yes, the government expands significantly. No surprise. There are three million men in uniform, all right? That's an expansion of government. What I think is much more telling 
is what happens when the war ends. If Lincoln had been the founder of big government, you would have seen it in certain ways. You would have seen a tremendous expansion in the federal budget, and you do see that during the war years. You would have seen a federal, you would have seen a tremendous expansion in federal employment and federal hiring, and you do see that during the war years. You would have seen an extraordinary expansion in federal bureaucracy, which you do not see during mm -hmm. the war years. Today we have something like 220 federal agencies. In Lincoln's day, he has seven. And those are things like the Coast Survey. Yeah, to fight a war. L right. Look, look, what does Lincoln's staff look like? In the exec today in the executive office of the president, which was created by Franklin Roosevelt, in the executive office of the president, we have over 200 personnel. Lincoln gets through the whole Civil War with a White House staff of, count them, six. 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 The Civil War. Tell me how this is an example of big government. All right, well, even if you then look at these other numbers about the budget and so on, look what happens when the war is over. We get to 1865, and what happens? For one thing, the Union Army shrinks. I mean, it does almost a disappearing act. Within a year of the end of the war, the United States Army has shrunk back to about 27,000 in strength. And it will shrink back still more over the years of Reconstruction. The federal budget does a dramatic shrink down as well. And if it weren't for the fact that the government is now obligated to pay pensions to Union veterans, yeah, I mean, if you, even if, more. Yeah. If, if, you would, if you would like to eliminate pensions for veterans, most of the people who make this complaint about Lincoln would not do that. But if you would like to eliminate pensions for veterans, uh, then, yes, the federal budget goes pretty much back to where it was before. Federal bureaucracy shrinks again. Uh, at every point where people want to say Lincoln is the author of big government, if, if Lincoln was the author of big government, by, by what magic powder, by, by what magic words, did we suddenly, after 1865, go right back to where we were and, and stay there in large measure until Woodrow Wilson and the turn into the 20th century? That, it seems to me, that is really, if you want to talk about origins of big government, you need to talk about the progressives of the Wilson administration. You need to talk about what happens in the heirs of the Wilsonian progressive, which is what you get in the New Deal. That's when you need to talk about quote-unquote, big government. But Lincoln, no, he, he is expanding government, but he's expanding it to meet an unprecedented national emergency. What, what would we expect him to do? Simply to stand there on the steps of the Capitol and say to the Confederate Army, you must not? Oh, that would be a really effective way of doing things. If ever there would have been grounds for impeachment, that would be. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So the argument that Lincoln is the founder of big government, I think, is absurd. And the people who are making it are making it, I have at least this strong suspicion, are doing it in bad faith. Okay. I've, I've, but they're doing it because if you make an argument based about Abraham Lincoln, you'll get people's attention. If I was to make an argument, Kevin, if I was to argue for you that the origins of big government are with Grover Cleveland, 
Do you think that would make it onto mm, the headlines yeah, of the? No. Yeah, would that make it on the tabloids? No, but but if you can say, "Oh, Lincoln did it," then suddenly, yes, you've got people's attention. And it goes back to our previous conversation when you mentioned Woodrow Wilson. Uh, if, if ever there was someone who should have been one of our our guys, here I'm speaking as Presbyterians. Uh, I mean, he was r- raised and reared by a stalwart Southern Presbyterian who had, uh, you know, these grandiose ideals. He might have even owned the phrase Christian nationalism, Woodrow Wilson. He certainly envisioned something of uh, a world-shaping significance for him and for his presidency. And today, almost all conservatives would look back and say, well, that's one presidency that mm, we would have liked to take a mulligan. There was not a, there, blaming that on his Presbyterianism. Hear that as a Presbyterian pastor. I'm just saying the fact that he lined up in the right way with some denominational affiliation didn't mean he was the sort of president that those same people would want to see today. I think there's good Calvinist wisdom in the caution that says, be careful what you wish for. That's right. So give us a last question. You talked at the very beginning in summarizing the book, explaining the problem that we find ourselves in, and you're turning to Lincoln to provide some hope. And you, you, you end the book with some of that, lessons. So, so leave us on a, a good, encouraging note. As we look at democracy as fallen on hard times, and of course, you know, much more important than democracy is the kingdom of Christ, and yet the kingdom of Christ is proclaimed through churches that by and large have existed in places uh, in recent memory where there are democracies or some kinds of, even, a, you know, a parliamentary, some kind of freedom and liberty that allows this to happen. So it's not, it's, it's not a thing indifferent for us. No, no. So what then is the hope amidst so many headlines that would make us think we're, we're looking for, we can expect nothing but declension on our way to national oblivion. Lincoln, I think, would respond this way. First of all, democracy has within it an element of resilience. It can absorb a lot of punishment. We're sometimes tempted to think that a solution would be through authority and power. But, but Kevin, the real truth is that authoritarian regimes even totalitarian regimes. They look powerful. Mm -hmm. They have big May Day parades with strutting soldiers and generals wearing medals and missiles uh, being pulled through the streets. They look powerful. But in fact, they're fragile. They look like they can make an immediate impact. But when that impact goes nowhere, they fall apart. And that's been the history of totalitarian and authoritarian regimes over and over and over. Whereas democracies, democracies get slugged in the jaw, they go down on the canvas, and you think, oh, well, they're finished. But they get up. They get up and they absorb more punishment. Then they start hitting back and they win. This, Historically speaking, this has been what has happened over and over again in the distinction between the two. So there's an element of hope, first of all, in resilience, the resilience of democracy. And Lincoln appeals to that resilience. In his first inaugural, he says 
speaking over the heads of his audience, really to the disgruntled Southerners who were already seceding from the Union. He says, why this impatience? Why this big hurry? Why not some kind of confident reliance on the wisdom of the people? He says, I, I'm an anti-slavery person. I've been elected president. I'm not going to be president for four years. If I make a mess of things, then the people go to the polls and elect somebody else. Uh, four years is not a whole lot of time to do a lot of damage. His reasoning with people Democracy has more resilience. It has more room for all of us than we sometimes think. Alongside resilience, for him, there was the stability given by law in a democracy. Democracy, unlike a lot of other regimes, democracy is a regime of reason. Democracy means that you argue with people, you debate with people, you put your reasons for doing things in front of people, and if that garners enough support, then you encode them as law. Other regimes don't. Other regimes, the law is really not law at all. It's the whim of the powerful, the whim of the oligarchy. But in a democracy, law is more important than the will of individuals. And the function of law can become a guarantee of peace and order and stability. In one of the early speeches he gave as a public figure in 1838, the so-called Lyceum speech, he talks about what happens when law is disregarded. Well, when law is disregarded, some people do terrible things to others. But what's the impact on bystanders, the larger public? larger public says, obviously, law is ineffective. Therefore, what we need is some heroic figure to show right. up on a white horse a Napoleon, an Alexander, a Caesar, who is going to impose order on this chaos. And that's when you get despotism. In a democracy, law protects us from that. To the extent that we understand the rule of law, then democracy becomes strong because the rule of law protects everybody. But I think in the, in the largest sense, he would appeal for hope from us because he believes there is a well of wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And isn't this, of course, the advice given to Job? Looking at his dilemma, there is wisdom in that multitude of counselors. Democracy is a, is a multitude of counselors. It says that ordinary people have sufficient capacity, they have sufficient insight, they have sufficient ability to reason, to work their way through the problems of government themselves. Democracy has a certain element of confidence. It says that ordinary people really know how to do this job. They're not born with saddles on their backs and bridles on their mouths mm -hmm. for some aristocrats to come and rule. So Lincoln would appeal to that confidence as well. And on all these grounds, he would say, on the basis of those three things, we survived a catastrophic civil war. <laughs> when we've, we've most recently had the experience of the pandemic. We know what kind of, of, of disruption that imposed on us. And in our lives, that was, that was a, a major, major event of, of tectonic proportions. But it was small potatoes compared to the American Civil War. 
democracy survives the American Civil War, survives it intact, continues to function. We are still the democracy that was saved in the American Civil War. And I think Lincoln would ask us to look carefully at what was done then in those years when he was the 16th president and to say, if we can be guided as a democracy through that kind of nightmare, then we can be guided through the troubles that beset us today. And that, Kevin, I think that is a, that is a word of hope. Very well put. The, the, the preacher and me wanted to make this into a nice alliteration. Resilience, rule of law, confidence in regular people. There you go. You can take it on the road. You got your three R's from right. Lincoln's hope. Uh, always great. I can't wait for your next book, uh, Lincoln or otherwise, and hope that you'll come back on. Alan Gelzo, Our Ancient Faith, Lincoln, Democracy, and the American Experiment. Look for it. It will be out, if it's not already, by... Uh, published by Alfred Knopf, Knopf. get the K. Uh, thank you so much. Always a, a joy and grateful to have you with us. So until next time, for all of our listeners, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book. Good book.